Hello, and welcome to Life's Little Mysteries with Live Science. I'm Gina Briner, Editor-in-Chief at Live Science. And I'm Mindy Weisberger, a senior writer at Live Science. Today, we're bringing you a special episode of Life's Little Mysteries. Usually, we keep things pretty light, but this time, we're going to focus on a serious topic that everybody is talking about, and that's the SARS coronavirus 2, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. At Life Science, our reporters and our editors are tracking the latest coronavirus developments around the world, from global case numbers and quarantines to vaccine development to best practices for safety, prevention, and treatment. Here with the latest coronavirus news is Life Science health reporter Nicoletta Lanise. She's at the forefront of our coronavirus coverage. This episode was recorded on March 5th and features Nicoletta's weekly coronavirus update and Q&A on Facebook Live. Link to the video is in the show notes. Hi, my name is Nicoletta Lanise, and I am a health reporter here at Live Science, here to bring you our weekly COVID-19 update. COVID-19 is the disease caused by the novel coronavirus that has been now spreading around the globe. So we're here to answer your questions. So just to give you an update on the global situation at present, total cases are now up to 96,888. That has been going higher and higher even as of today. I checked it this morning and then had to check it again just before this live stream. Most of these cases are still within mainland China, with 80,422 being in mainland China. The death count is now up to 3,305, 313, excuse me. Within the U.S., we now have 162 confirmed cases. Note that testing is still not overly widespread, so it's likely that there are far more cases than are being accounted for at this present moment. But now that testing has ramped up a bit in the last week, we are seeing that there are 162 confirmed. And this week, we saw the first deaths in the U.S. So we're up to 11 at present, with most of those coming from Washington State and one in California as of now. Given these outbreaks in the U.S., both several counties, especially those that are being hit harder, are now recommending that people above a certain age So within King County in Washington, for instance, above 60 in Santa Clara County, above 50 years old, should stay home as much as possible and avoid large public gatherings. That would include religious services, concerts, parades, any sort of gathering probably above 10 people would be considered large at this point to avoid catching the virus themselves as it continues to spread through communities. And again, this is in specifically affected counties that are having massive outbreaks. So if you haven't heard this recommendation for where you live specifically, I wouldn't act upon it at this time. Within the last week, the U.S. government has also enabled private labs, companies, and academic institutions to start developing, verifying, and deploying their own diagnostic tests. So there are now tests available that are not directly made and verified through the CDC, but rather this should enable far more labs to start testing people and our capacity as a country to test people and get a handle on how many cases we have should ramp up over the coming week or to two weeks. And we're already seeing tests be introduced in new markets in that way. Some of these tests, just to give you an idea of what they, how they work, the CDC tests and many others work by analyzing swab samples from individuals, so taken from the mouth and nose, and trying to detect 
bits of viral genetic material from within those swabs. So this is a very typical way to diagnose viral diseases. Other labs are also developing tests to use CRISPR gene editing technology. So this, in this context, they're using CRISPR to tag the same or similar viral bits that they're looking for with these PCR tests, so the more typical tests. And instead of looking for them in the standard way, they're tagging them with a fluorescent label. So it would work similar to, say, a pregnancy test where you dip it in some solution and if the virus is present, it will change color. So this would be a more rapid test that could um, deliver results within one to two hours is the idea. So that's another type of test that's being designed by multiple labs. And serological or blood tests are also in the works to detect antibodies within people who have been infected. So antibodies are what the immune system develops when it's exposed to a new pathogen so that it can later identify that pathogen if it comes in contact with it again. There is also recruitment starting for a candidate vaccine. Um, so that trial is recruiting within the state of Washington and I believe we'll recruit 45 individuals to try this candidate vaccine. This is just the safety trial. So this is just to make sure people don't have extreme adverse reactions to the vaccine. And then barring good results from this initial trial, it would move on into further trials to test how effective it really is against the virus itself. But that is underway. And there are other vaccines either in development or on the way to clinical trials as of now. So I'm starting to get some questions, so I'm gonna turn it over to you guys. I'm getting the question, the mortality rate seems to be increasing, is this actually true? The initial estimates that came out nailing down mortality rate came from within China, within Hubei province specifically. So as it's spread to the rest of the world, you're gonna see constant adjustment of those figures. Generally speaking, I believe the 2.3% mortality rate is still the number most places are reporting. It's a number that's been reported by most researchers at this point. The discrepancy comes from if you look at, so that's based slightly on a model, taking into account the fact that we don't know exactly how many cases are present around the world. If you take the raw numbers of confirmed cases versus deaths that we know about connected to this virus, then you might get a slightly different figure, which I believe is where the higher estimate is coming from because you're working with only the confirmed cases that we're seeing when really there are also unconfirmed cases that contribute to the overall case count. So that's where some of this discrepancy in mortality rate comes from. I've also gotten the question, there's been some reports about people catching the virus twice um, we've done some reporting on this. It appears that the virus itself can persist in the body for a few weeks after symptoms clear up in people. So they appear to have completely recovered, but viral particles are still in their system. This is very typical of a virus. And it's still unclear whether people who have appeared to catch the virus twice are actually just experiencing a resurgence of symptoms having not fully recovered or if they're picking up a brand new strain of the virus, there is some chance that the virus has mutated into a new strain and they could catch that new strain, which would differ from the one they had before. We are currently working on stories, looking closer at the mutation rate of the virus, 
which so far has been estimated to be fairly slow. But looking closer at what that means for people, number one, catching disease more than once, but also what that means for how the disease changes through time. So if a mutation could, for instance, make this virus even more transmissible or make it less transmissible. So we're trying to nail down what people know about the mutation rate at this point. So you can expect that story from us within the coming week. There have also been questions about whether we can expect to see citywide quarantines, as we've seen in China, of course, um, here in the U.S. So the state and federal governments technically have the power to institute these citywide quarantines, mass quarantines, in times of emergency. Experts are saying that this is unlikely in the U.S. for a number of reasons at this point. Number one, the first measures that will be employed will be social distancing measures, like those I mentioned before, avoiding public gatherings, staying home when you're sick, um, keeping a distance between people if you are out and about, things like that. And these have been shown to reduce the spread of viral infections in general. So that would be instituted long before a mass quarantine, a lockdown would be instituted. Beyond that, if you do institute a citywide quarantine, you need people on the ground, law enforcement, military members to enforce said quarantine. And also you need to be able to support the people under lockdown in terms of delivering them food and medical supplies and other supplies they might need, especially depending on how long the quarantine lasts. So for these reasons, it could actually put a greater strain on those communities to be under lockdown than to be under kind of voluntary self-distancing measures. And of course, given the need for people to generally be out and about and live their daily lives as much as possible in this situation, that will be an extreme, extreme measure that we wouldn't expect at this time. So I'm getting a question about the R0 number for this virus versus the seasonal flu. The R0 number reflects the estimated number of people that a single infected person would infect on average. So it's a measurement of transmissibility of a virus. It doesn't, it's not a perfect measurement because it is an average. So some people known as super spreaders can spread a virus to many, many people, and they would obviously defy that average. Um, so just keep that in mind when you're looking at these numbers. But yes, in terms of current estimates for the r not of this new coronavirus are higher than the flu, but that number could change in the coming days and weeks as we continue to estimate. As of yet, it's been estimated within the ballpark of a pandemic flu, so closer to an r not of 2 to 2.3, is the rough range that we're working with at this present moment. So yes, at this moment, it seems like it's a single infected person is more likely to spread it to more people. But that number comes with it a lot of caveats and you're working with a lot of unknowns and calculating it. As the outbreak continues, that number will continue to change and we might have different information for you going forward. Just to remind everyone, of the CDC's current recommendations for those who think they might have the virus. So if you develop mild symptoms, so you have a mild fever, a dry cough that doesn't 
interfere with your ability to breathe, things like that, where you feel like you might be coming down with something and you're in an affected area, of course. At that point, you are recommended to self-quarantine in your own home and treat the illness as you would any mild respiratory infection. So make sure you're eating healthy foods, make sure you're hydrating plenty, make sure you're getting lots of sleep, all those standard health practices. And if you continue to have symptoms um, or you are interested in being tested, be sure to call ahead to your doctor or hospital to consult with a medical professional if you have mild symptoms before you go in so they can see if you are really at risk of having caught the disease. If you experience more intense symptoms, so you have a high fever, a really awful cough, you're experiencing shortness of breath, please go to your nearest healthcare facility. And hopefully there will be measures in place to triage you towards diagnostic testing. And now that hopefully the test will become more widespread, that will happen. You can get a formal diagnosis of yes or no, you have the virus, and then move on from there. If you are in a population of people who might experience more serious complications from catching this virus, so if you're over 60 years of age, or if your immune system is compromised in some way due to a prior medical condition, I would recommend that if you think you have the virus, you go to your healthcare facility sooner rather than later. Even if you only have mild symptoms, you have a higher risk of developing serious complications from the virus. And it's possible that you are more likely to develop pneumonia, which is the most serious form of this disease, wherein the lung tissue becomes inflamed and fills with pockets of pus that makes it very difficult to breathe. So if you're in a vulnerable population that could experience greater side effects from this, I would recommend you seek medical attention sooner rather than later. I've forgotten the question as well. Here in New York especially, we're seeing more efforts to sanitize um, public transport, so the subway stations, etc. And nationwide, we're seeing schools start to be shut down in order to undergo deep cleanings to hopefully prevent coronavirus infection. And the question I've been getting is, how do we know this disinfectant is enough to deactivate the virus would be the word for it. So based on what we know about other coronaviruses, standard household disinfectants can efficiently inactivate these viruses within about a minute of exposure. So wiping down countertops and frequently used or frequently touched surfaces like doorknobs and things like that is highly recommended, especially if you're in an affected area. So the disinfectants that work best for this purpose are those that contain 62 to 70% ethanol, 0.5% hydrogen peroxide, or 0.1% leach. So likely you already have a household cleaner in your home that contains these ingredients, but be sure to double check before But these viruses are enveloped in a fatty membrane that when exposed to these very harsh disinfectants breaks down. So in this way, the virus can be inactivated. And your standard hand sanitizers work very similarly. That's why you need hand sanitizers with at least 60% alcohol. So it's the alcohol itself that's working on these membranes and breaking them down so the virus can no longer survive. There's also been reports, of course, of 
hand sanitizer is selling out everywhere. Note that hand sanitizer is always the backup solution. Washing your hands frequently is really the best measure you can take. But if you can't wash your hands for some reason with, you know, clean water and standard hand soap, hand sanitizer is your backup. And we'll be coming out with a video. We have a story up about hand sanitizer and how it works to fight viruses up on our website if you want to check it out at LiveScience.com. I'm getting a question. I've heard that there are two strains of this virus circulating at present. And does the resistance you build up being exposed to one apply to the second? So we are digging into this question. It's still uncertain. These are preliminary studies, just um, to be clear. So we're following up with experts in the field to determine whether their methodology is sound enough to make the determination that, yes, indeed, there are more than one strain circulating at this time. As we've seen with other viruses, I'm using the flu as an example, not because it's a, the same disease, but because it's another virus that has multiple circulating strains. You can catch different strains of the same type of virus. So there's a possibility that immunity would not carry over to that second strain, especially if it works via a slightly different mechanism to invade host cells. So there would be a chance if there are multiple strains circulating that people could catch both. But again, we don't know for sure that there are multiple strains circulating at this time, but there have been preliminary reports saying as much. Again, at this time, I would like to plug just our articles that are already up on LiveScience.com. There's an especially good one I would like to direct your attention to. It is called Five Mistakes You Personally Could Make to Worsen the Coronavirus Outbreak. So these five mistakes could worsen the coronavirus outbreak. And it's basically driving home the message that if you're sick, you should self-quarantine unless you need medical attention. Be sure to really dig around in terms of the information you're seeing online. So the information being provided by healthcare professionals and reputable news sources, things like that, always hold above potential untrustworthy sites. If you do see something that raises your attention, dig into their sourcing. Who did they talk to to find this information? What scientific studies are they referencing? All that sort of things. There's already a lot of misinformation circulating about this virus. So just be careful when you see a headline online that's catchy that what you're reading is the best information you can be reading right now. And of course, here at Live Science, we're working to triage all that information for you and summarize it so you don't have to go digging yourself. It's also, of course, imperative to practice good standard hygiene. So avoiding close contact with people who are sick, not touching your eyes, nose, or mouth, staying home if you're sick, covering your coughs and sneezes with a tissue, and then tossing the tissue in the trash, or using your elbow if you do not have a tissue, wearing a face mask if you're showing symptoms of COVID-19, or you are experiencing a different respiratory illness. Again, wearing a face mask will not protect you from catching this virus. It's about preventing respiratory droplets from exiting your mouth and nose and infecting others. So unless you yourself are sick, you don't need to be wearing a surgical mask out and about. On that note, another thing that happened this week was the U.S. Surgeon General tweeted begging people to stop buying up the country's supply of masks and respirators just because they're really more needed for those working in healthcare facilities. 
So these are really important to, especially the N95 respirators, which are designed to block out viral particles. These are imperative for healthcare workers working with people who might have the virus themselves. This protects our healthcare workers and therefore protects anybody who's going into a healthcare facility right now. So if you yourself are not working in a hospital or working with people who likely have the virus, there's no need for you to go out and stockpile these respirators. And you also need special training to don the masks correctly and block out the viral particles in the first place, which you will not have access to as an individual. And there's a whole testing process that people go through. So there's actually a, an interesting Twitter thread online of a healthcare professional describing the testing process. So you have to don the mask. It comes in many different sizes, number one, so you don't know your size. So to make sure you have the right size and it's fitted correctly, they go through all these various testing scenarios to make sure no air at all is sneaking through the sides of your mask. So all that to say, if you are healthy, you don't need to be buying up these masks right now. Again, just to follow up, the way we can work together to try to, it's not so much containing the outbreak as slowing the outbreak so our healthcare facilities can handle it better and we as a community can handle it better. The best thing you can do is follow these behavioral measures. So when you're recommended to stay home, um, when you're recommended to stand roughly three feet away from the person next to you in the grocery store, if you can follow these practices, they will help slow the spread of the virus. And the key here is that instead of seeing a dramatic spike in cases that then breaks down the very fabric of our society because our infrastructure can't handle it, you see it flatten out over time and become more manageable for both government officials, healthcare officials, but also just individuals who need medical attention for both COVID-19 and other things during this time. Other medical emergencies still happen. People still need to get to the hospital for other reasons. Um, so if we can maintain as much of our resources for those people as well as COVID-19 patients, that would be ideal. One last question, we're about to wrap up. Assuming current trends continue in New York, do you have a projection or a hunch as to when all New York public schools will be closed? There is one county that has instituted at least a short school closure. That was in Westchester, I believe. I would double check if that's um, a county or a county near you. But I do not have a projection as to when all New York public schools might be closed or if they even will be closed. That is something you should really stay in tune with um, with your local school district because they should be issuing those reports themselves. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this week's update. But again, if you have any questions or you want to keep up with the most current coronavirus updates, we're posting on LiveScience.com multiple times a day with new stories. And you can ask more questions on our forums, forums.LiveScience.com. Thanks for joining us for this special coronavirus report from Life's Little Mysteries with Live Science. You can find all the Live Science coverage of the coronavirus and COVID-19 on our website at livescience.com slash topics slash coronavirus. 
We'll be refreshing our FAQ and coronavirus updates daily as information becomes available. The link is in the show notes. If you have questions about coronavirus or COVID-19, you can post them on our live science forums and on Facebook. Thanks for joining us and stay healthy. Life's Little Mysteries is produced in conjunction with Audio Boom as part of their Audio Boom Originals Network.